Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. The longest government shutdown in U.S. history was triggered by an impasse over border security. After all of these decades, secure our border. President Trump must stop holding the American people hostage. This barrier is absolutely critical to border security. That's just plain wrong. How much more American blood must we shed before Congress does its job? How many more times can we say no? Nothing for the world. Lost in the political feud are the voices on the ground that are personally affected by the broader immigration debate. Our friends at the Marshall Project spoke to some of them. To survive in Russia, I had to hide myself. Alana was fleeing persecution in her home country. You can't stand out. When I was dreaming about who I become, who I want to be, I realized I couldn't be myself. If you're saying you are uh, gay or lesbian or transgender, it's equating to being a pedophile and by the law it's persecuted. She was ultimately granted asylum in the United States. Like the heaviest weight fall from my shoulders, like I can breathe fully. We have people from all over the world coming in illegally through Mexico. That could mean us harm. David Ward sees things from a different perspective. He's a former ICE agent. There are people coming into this country that want to kill, and you want to stop that from happening. We are down there on the border to protect this country, and that's what our job is. And then there's Danny. There were threats made against my mom and my sister and I specifically. Whose parents brought her and her twin sister to the United States when they were five. There were pictures of us taken in a playground, sent to my parents as threats. My parents ultimately decided that the best thing to do would be to leave. We all know that the only way to effectively address all these competing needs and issues is for Washington to tackle immigration in a comprehensive way. But in the last 20 years, each attempt has failed. So are we just permanently stuck here? Is immigration reform impossible? We know that you can't talk about immigration without talking to everybody. The current environment in this country is so poisonous, and I don't see that changing. The die was cast in 2007, and it's going to be a long, long time before there's another obvious opening. Right now, this is political football. Or is there some road to salvation we just haven't figured out? It must not be seen as a one-party issue. Things can change. You know how fast they can change. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Now, to do a story on the history of immigration and all the dynamics at play in this country, normally you have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Okay, but we only have an hour. So let's just rewind to the last 20 years or so. It's really a stretch, in a way, to remember this dawning day with a brand new president and his top domestic policy effort. He wants it to be immigration reform because he thinks there's so much opportunity in that. 
That's Sherry Robertson. She's a documentary filmmaker. And back in the early 2000s, she and her filmmaking partner, Michael Camerini, embedded themselves within this reform effort, the one that was driven by President George W. Bush. It works out that he's got two perfect partners as head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is where immigration has to to follow. He's got Senator Ted Kennedy, and he's got very conservative Kansas Senator Sam Brownback. And they are both completely sold on getting a historic reform done. So there's a guy who starts a think tank. His name is Dimitri Papadimitriou, and the think tank that he starts is the Migration Policy Institute. And this guy has been working with diplomats and business leaders and labor leaders and politicians and advocates to come up with sort of the technical solution to the immigration problem, which had gotten a little worse in terms of illegal immigration in the 80s and 90s because there were lots and lots of jobs. The economy was booming and there weren't always enough Americans to do those jobs. So Dmitry Papadimitriou comes up with what he calls the four-legged stool. And it includes an overall visa program that would respond to the needs of the economy. The second piece of it was that there would then have to be enforcement at the border but also in the interior, in the workplace. And then once you got that future system organized, you had to do two other things. You had to take care of the already millions of people who were living in the United States without legal status. You had to figure out a way for them to attain legal status. It could be arduous, it could be a gift, (laughs) it could be amnesty, the way the 1986 law had been, but something had to be done to let these people move out of an illegal status. And then the last thing was, very pertinent for today's problems, you needed to spend money in the sending countries so that people didn't see their only chance for opportunity for themselves and their families as coming to the United States. And those four parts all had to work together. And remarkably, all the parties were bought in. Business, labor, the advocates, the White House, the Democrats, the Republicans, Each one of those had significant constituencies ready to support this deal. This was all lined up to go, and then 9-11 happened? That's right. The summer was spent in secret negotiations, which were leaked by the New York Times and caused a huge amount of excitement. The press got very focused on the immigration reform. And in very late August, or maybe early September, President Fox who was also newly in office in Mexico, came and addressed the entire U.S. Congress. The end of that week, the Friday before 9-11, Kennedy and Brownback held a hearing in the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, which became known as the Love Fest. Not only Dimitri testified, but Tom Donahue of the Chamber of Commerce, John Sweeney for the labor movement, head of the AFL-CIO, Steve Moore uh, was then very pro-immigration, And they were all very much in support of this deal. And people were telling us it was going to pass before the end of 2001. And then the next Tuesday, 9-11 happened. And, you know, American history changed. After 9-11, Sherry says immigration reform got pushed to the side and the focus shifted entirely to national security. One bill did, however, have an immigration component, and that was the Border Security Bill. The Border Security Bill passed the House very, very quickly in 2002, but it got snagged in the Senate by one senator. 
it was Senator Robert Byrd who had some grievances. And while the snag was going on and the press was very focused on both national security and to some extent the border and immigration, the White House was getting really nervous because President Bush still wanted this immigration reform too. So they thought they came up with a simple little fix that, th that could call Mexico and keep everybody willing to let negotiations proceed as they had to. It was called 245I, and it had something to do with how a person out of status, how much time they would have to spend in or out of the country in order to adjust. It didn't affect that many people, but it was important for the people it affected. But it was something that the immigration opponents could take and make a lot more out of as an amnesty. And that was really, I think, where the very, very big opposition to immigration started. I think that's where they learned an awful lot about using the media and marshalling forces. Back in those days, it was thousands and dozens of thousands of faxes, you know, flooding Capitol Hill offices and closing down the switchboards. It wasn't the way it works now. But it was still a, it was a way to let people express significant feelings and, and affect, you know, what politicians were willing to do. When I talk to folks in Washington about immigration reform, they point to, as you did, this permanent outrage machine that there are activist groups now fueled by the internet, that um, they literally are making their money from keeping an issue like this from getting resolved. I'm wondering if you, you think about the biggest difference between what the political environment and opportunity was in 2006 and 2007 and between 2013, if that is really the biggest difference, just the, the advent of the internet and the ways in which these outside groups have proliferated and have used this issue to really make themselves money. I think that's a huge part of it. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the money part goes all the way around it. It's not only the outrage machine groups make money, but tons more money has moved into the whole debate. Were you at all surprised to see that we've ended up now, at this moment in time, experiencing the longest government shutdown in history over the building of a border wall? I can't even start to tell you how surprised I am. <laughs> For so many years, the idea of a border fence, a border wall, you know, it would be the last thing on a list of many, many substantive points, and usually the meeting would end before you ever got to that one. I mean, it was, you know, it was not ever recognized as a very big deal, but it's been turned into the entire deal, right? It's the litmus test. How you feel about being an American is now visible if you'll reveal how you feel about the wall. I asked Sherry about her biggest takeaways from all those years of reporting on immigration reform. She listed three. There's never going to be comprehensive immigration reform until we can figure out a way to radically reduce the incentives for illegal immigration. At some point, people say, well, if you can't figure out how to make it legal, then just stop it. The second was political. The political center where it was possible to make a compromise deal 
so that everybody got something, even though everybody was giving away something, that was gone. Until that window for compromise opens again, the deal has disappeared. And the third? The Dreamers. The Dreamers have become the face of immigration reform. Ironically, having started out as one very small, what was considered to be easy fix to the large comprehensive immigration reform package that was cooked up in the early 2000s. What was always considered to be such an easy give, that is now basically the only demand the left feels like it still can legitimately cling to. And I think that's really the proof that comprehensive immigration reform, the advocates have lost for now. Sherry Robertson is a documentary filmmaker based in New York City. Her filmmaking credits include How Democracy Works Now and Immigration Battle. Democrats and Republicans weren't always this divided over immigration. It's great to be back in Omaha. I'm a little, um, I just wish the timing were a little better. Let's go back to 2006. That year, President George W. Bush spoke in Omaha, Nebraska, to garner support for an immigration bill that combined tougher border security with a pathway for legal status for millions of immigrants, plus a guest worker program. And the language Bush used during that speech? Well, it's not the sort of thing we're used to hearing from our Republican president nowadays. This country is debating an important issue. It's an issue about our soul and our character. It's an issue that relates to people in our country. It's the immigration issue. This immigration reform bill passed the Senate. A different version passed the House. But in the end, the two bodies couldn't reconcile and the bill failed. Still, it had support among Democrats and Republicans, got more than 60 votes in the Senate. So how did we end up here, where we are now, where an immigration bill like this one with bipartisan support seems almost unimaginable? To make sense of this, I checked in with Chuck Hagel. He's a former Republican senator from Nebraska, and he was one of the co-sponsors of that 2006 immigration bill. What's happening in this country today is uh, like a bad storm, a a real bad storm. You can't stop a bad storm. There are two things you can do if you have time, is uh, head for the potato cellar and get out of the way and then start planning how you're going to rebuild after the storm is through and the destruction that it's brought. I think we need to stay focused on it, talk about it, debate it, all those things that keep it up front. I just don't see any kind of compromise this year or next year in the current political environment. And that is because of who the president is? Well, the president leads on these things. Now, recognizing in 2006, President Bush led on this, Mm -hmm. but his own Republican-controlled House didn't agree with him. And so I recognize the limitations of a president, but a president of the United States has a responsibility to lead on these big issues. And I don't see his position on immigration reform going to change. I mean, look at what we've got right now. We've got almost a month-old government shutdown over the wall, over his money that he insists on getting to build that wall. His focus is entirely on border security. Well, when that is the case, I don't see how you find compromise here on all the other absolutely necessary parts of immigration reform. Basically, what is the pathway towards citizenship for many of these 
undocumented aliens in the country today. So is it just that simply the focus is too, I'm trying to think about a way to say it. When I think about where Republicans, at least in the House, certainly with this president, the focus starts in some ways ends with border security. That is the number one issue. When we talk about immigration reform, it means security at our borders. Democrats will say we need to have reform that is compassionate, right, that deals with the people who are already here illegally. And that's where we should start. And we should talk about border security. Is that a fair way to think about where we are in this debate and why it's become so difficult to get a bipartisan bill that both sides are going to be able to say they are okay with, or at least enough of them are okay with? Yes, but I would add one thing. How do you implement border security? Many people feel a wall is not adequate. That's not going to do it. There's no way a 2,000-mile border can be addressed by a wall. First of all, there's areas in, in down there that uh, you can't build a wall on. There are, are property rights issues. Yes, we have to have some fencing. George Bush strongly supported a lot of that fencing that went up during his time down there. So did Obama. It's not a matter of all wall or no wall, but it's using other means to secure your border that may well be far more effective than a wall. So that part of the argument is right in the, in the middle of all this. Right. And it also seems that where Republicans are coming from is that if indeed there is a pathway to citizenship, it is ultimately an acknowledgement that people got away with breaking the law. That is a big issue and always has been and will continue to be. But then let's look at the reality of what we have here. The alternative here is to go find 12 million undocumented aliens and uh, root them up. you got to uh, incarcerate them somewhere to hold them and then uh, get them back to where they came from. That's just impossible. So then what are your, your alternatives here? Well, that's the whole point of immigration reform. The matter, matter of fact here, when you're talking about those undocumented, most of those people ha- are here because they overstayed their legitimate visas. That 12 million, if that figure is anywhere close, and I think it is, isn't a majority of people who swam across the river or who climbed the walls. It isn't that at all. So there's been tremendous exaggeration here, uh, just like the president exaggerates on these are terrible people and they're, they're gangs and they're drug pushers and they're rapists and uh, criminals that all come to this country. I mean, come on, let's, let's get real. But emotionally, that appeals to some people. I don't see any room, any way for compromise on something like this when you've got a president uh, who has taken the position that he has. So is there room for that deal maker, that moderate voice, a place where we could see, you know, when I looked at that co-sponsor list from 2006, that you could have Kennedy, Hagel, Lindsey Graham, Sam Brownback. That seems almost impossible now. Well, we had enough core interests. You never get 100% of, of what you want. I don't think I ever voted on any bill in the Senate unless it was a Mother's Day resolution that uh, I could support like like 100%. This is 100% of what I'd like to see. That's the nature of democracy. That's the nature of, of this business. And when you don't adhere to that, 
and you dismiss that compromise, then you have paralysis and complete dysfunction. So I think what's going to happen in this country is within a two to three year period, we're going to change our attitudes on how we get along. Look at the 100 new members of the House. This is a whole different dynamic of incoming members of Congress. They all talk about, let's get along, let's be smart, let's get things done, let's move for a higher purpose, not a political purpose. I'm sick of what we're seeing. They're younger. The demographics are different. So I'm encouraged by that very much, Amy, and I, and I think that's what's going to save us. Secretary Chuck Hagel, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you, Amy. The next major push for immigration reform happened during the Obama administration. Cecilia Munoz, who served as director of the Domestic Policy Council, was instrumental in that fight. And the failure to get it done? She places that blame squarely on the GOP. The single reason that we have not been able to get an immigration reform through the Congress of the United States is a political problem on the Republican side of the aisle. What that means is that There is a segment of the Republican side which is vocally and violently opposed to a reform bill that most of the country supports and most of the Congress supports. And they're violently opposed enough to throw the speaker out, or so the last couple of speakers have believed anyway, if he or she were to bring up a vote. Now, you worked at the White House at a time when Democrats, though, had control of the House and the Senate. Why not just pass it in 2009? Well, we tried. We tried with the DREAM Act in the lame duck session of 2010. At the time, there were 11 Republicans in the Senate who had previously voted for the DREAM Act. We didn't need all of them, but we only got three, and we lost that vote by five votes. So I want to talk about the ways in which we get to a, a place where we can find policies that work. But where we are right now, it seems, is stuck. And so I want to talk about two things. The first is, is the DACA program. Were you deeply involved in formulating this? Okay. Yes. Can you can you walk us through how you got to this place, how the president got to this place? So DACA is an expression of enforcement policy. So what happened in the Obama administration is that the administration recognized for the first time for any administration, that we needed to have a strategy around immigration enforcement, particularly around removals of people who are living and working in the United States. There are 11 million undocumented people. And for all of Congress's immigration zeal, they don't appropriate enough funds to remove 11 million people. So what the Obama administration did for the first time was say, we're actually going to have priorities around who we're going to go after to try to remove it's it's something that any law enforcement agency worth its salt mm-hmm. does, right? If you run the police department in a city, you don't expend the same enforcement resources going after jaywalkers as you do going after murderers. The Obama administration applied the same principle. And by 2012, what we found was that the policy changes we were making were not good enough because people who were clearly at the bottom of our priority list for removals, the dreamers, right? People who would, these are young people who would come often as infants, their parents brought them, they had never made the choice to come illegally, and they had grown up here, and in many cases didn't know that they weren't Americans until they applied for driver's licenses or to college. They're clearly on the bottom of the priority list for removal. They kept getting picked up 
by our immigration authorities, which was a sign that the policy changes DHS was making, the prioritization wasn't working. And so what DACA is, is it's saying to those people, you're still deportable, but we recognize that you're at the bottom of our priority list. So you're really not going anywhere. And we will give you the chance to come forward, defer your deportation, and get work authorization so that you can support yourself because other people are our priorities for removal. We'd rather remove people who are criminals who are convicted of serious crimes who pose some other kind of danger or threat to the people of the United States. That's what DACA is. The issue of DACA is now President Trump said we're getting rid of this. The issue is currently in the courts. So can, right. what what is the court trying to determine right now, whether the president, this president has standing in overturning it? So if you remember, President Trump said he wanted that he had a lot of sympathy for the dreamers. Mm -hmm. But then Attorney General Sessions announced that they were revoking DACA, the memorandum which created DACA, which was a DHS memo, and that the reason they were doing it was that they wanted to force Congress to take action. So it was a way of saying... I really like these people. I really want the, the, you know, a good outcome for them, but I want Congress to do it, not me. And needless to say, Congress did not take action because Congress has trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And, and so, but they revoked the memorandum, which creates the policy, and then there has been litigation. So what is going through the courts is a series of questions around whether or not the administration acted rightly in revoking the program. And so the excuse that many in the White House are giving right now that we can't do anything about this until the courts decide, how valid is that? Well, this is a problem of their own making. They didn't need to revoke the memo. There was no reason to do it. They did it to try to force Congress to take action, and they failed. And so now they're you know, shifting the blame somewhere else. But the fact of the matter is this entire situation results from the actions of this administration. So given everything that you've said, I think I know your answer, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. How optimistic are you that a comprehensive immigration reform bill can ever pass Congress and be signed by a president, whether it is this president or the next president? So I've been working on the same formulation of immigration reform for around 20 years. (laughs) It's almost passed twice. So, you know, at some level, I guess I wouldn't, the group of people all over the country who have worked on this issue wouldn't do it unless we had hope that Congress would do the right thing by the American people and pass a bill, which is good for the country. We are in, in this particular moment, in an unprecedented and crazy and terrible place at which in the name of border security, we have an administration who is creating crises and frankly making everything worse. So at this minute, it's hard to see the path forward. But frankly, this minute, it's hard to see how the government ever opens again. But at the end of the day, and we actually, as a people, the people of the United States mostly don't disagree on this topic, on on what the solution is. If we're having a conversation about how to fix our broken immigration system and how to address the challenges at the border in a way that makes sense and that actually works, there is ample precedent for bipartisan agreement that the bulk of the country supports. But if you were to do that, then you don't get an issue to wave around like a flag the way this president does. And he's much more interested in demagoguing the issue 
then he isn't fixing any problems. Cecilia Munoz, thank you so much. Thank you. On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Caught in the middle of this impasse over immigration are the people whose lives and futures are on the line. My next guest has watched the immigration debate from multiple sides. You might even know him. His name is Jose. I remember when I was in middle school, which is where I ended up being when I first got here in sixth grade, and the kids had to identify as something, and I didn't know I was Asian. <laughs> I'm Filipino, you know? Like, So people were white, and then they're black, and then were Hispanic or Asian. And since my name is so Spanish, yet I look, I guess, Asian, so where do I go? <laughs> Jose Antonio Vargas first came to the United States in 1993. He was living in the Philippines, the only place he knew of as home, when one morning his mother woke him up, put him in a cab, and sent him to the airport. He was greeted by a man he had never seen before. He was told that man was his uncle. They boarded a plane to the United States, where he would live with his grandparents in the San Francisco Bay Area. For years, Jose Antonio Vargas thought he was like any other kid. He never questioned his legal status. So all of that didn't become clear until um, the lies that I was told kind of started falling apart, which is when I applied for a driver's license when I was 16 and went to the DMV and the woman at the DMV looked at my green card and said this was fake. The moment she said that, one of the first things I thought of in my head was, she's wrong. Then I went home and then my grandfather confirmed that the woman was right, that the license was fake, that I was smuggled that I wasn't supposed to be here. I was supposed to work under the table jobs. And then his plan was I would marry a woman. But there were a couple problems with this plan. First, Jose is gay. And when he came out in high school, same-sex marriage wasn't yet a reality. Second, Jose is ambitious, and he wasn't going to settle for an under-the-table kind of job. He went on to become a journalist at the Washington Post, and a very successful one at that. Today, he runs an organization called Define American, which is dedicated to telling the stories of immigrants and immigration, like the stories of his grandparents. The reality that my grandparents lived is the kind of immigrant reality that most of America, I don't think, understands, right? So they came here in the early mid-80s, came here as permanent legal residents. My grandfather's sister petitioned him to come, then my grandmother followed. But when they got to America, this question of assimilation, which is what we talk about in kind of the public space, that wasn't the question. The question was, how do you kind of survive in this new land, the language of which you don't speak that much, barely understand, and the thinking that you come here as labor. From the very beginning, my grandparents came here knowing that they're here to work, and that was all. The household that they built, We spoke Tagalog. We only watched the Filipino news. We read Filipino things. We had Filipino friends. That was the reality they were shaping. And then comes this 12-year-old kid that wanted to go to the library and wanted to understand what Sondheim was or, like, try to understand what the New Yorker magazine was all about. In many ways, it was really tense. 
but, but yet the reality that my grandparents lived, I think for most immigrants who are here, legally or illegally, or the many people who are green card holders who for some reason have decided to not apply for U.S. citizenship, that the green card was enough, it's because they see themselves as mere labor. Like, we're not here to participate. We're just here to work. What was the reason for why you were sent to them away from your mother? What, what was the reason to hmm. leave Manila? I mean, the reason that they gave me was that this was going to be better and that I could help support the family. Because, you know, at that point, my grandparents had been supporting my mother and I since I was, you know, since I was born. And so then, of course, when they said that, I thought to myself, oh, so I'm here like you. I'm here for labor. <laughs> right. Like I'm here to kind of keep this cycle going of like I have money and then I give it to my mom. Kind of this remittance culture. Right. The money that immigrants in America send to their um, native countries. And in the beginning, I kind of resented that. Actually, when I look back now, I was, just, you know, I think, gosh, you know, how, <laughs> what a spoiled brat I was thinking all of that. Like, it was very short-sighted, I guess, as teenagers can think. I didn't see the big picture. I didn't understand why they thought it was better. And frankly, for me, I had to figure out how to emotionally divorce myself from my mom. Because all of a sudden, the rejection was... um that was the first thing I thought of. I thought, you know, maybe she thought I was too much of a responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. just send me here. And then it took me, I think, until about I was in my mid-20s when I was, when I was already working at the Washington Post when I was in D.C. to have a conversation with her on the phone because, you know, that was the only way we could communicate. And I think I, I flatly asked her, am I here so I can send you money? That was hard. Did she respond to you? Yeah, I could I could hear that she was um, she was starting to get really emotional on the phone and, you know, but, you know, and that's the thing, too, about separation. Right. Like. Context is lost, you know, I mean, it's not like we can just talk and like, hey, how was your day today? <laughs> Whenever, you know, and this again, this was back in 2005, 2006, when I couldn't make free phone calls. <laughs> like, right. you know, like the, the calls were, were had to be quick because, you know, they were expensive international phone calls. And that's really what I had to grapple with with this book is like the weight of all of that, that frankly, I just didn't want to have to deal with. And then, you know, where I've found peace a lot is really studying Irish immigrant history, Italian immigrant history, to try to understand what people had to deal with when they come from somewhere else and then they come here and then they have to deal with the emotional baggage that never gets unpacked. Jose has spent the better part of the last decade unpacking his own emotional baggage about being an undocumented immigrant. And in 2011, at the peak of his journalism career, he made a bold decision to come out of the closet. This time, not as a gay man, but as an undocumented American. I really didn't want to let go of my journalism career. (laughs) I knew that the Mm. moment, the moment I knew, the moment I started using I, me, and my in writing, I knew that my career would change. And I'm saying this as, you know, a Filipino who was openly gay, who was a political reporter, right? Like that was kind of my, back in 2007, eight, nine, you know, that's what I was doing. And look, like if you're, <laughs> you know, I had a great interview with David Brooks actually at, um, about the book, but if you're David Brooks, if you're like, you know, a straight white guy and you use I, me and my, it's called analysis, 
when you're a person of color or a woman, it's called an agenda, <laughs> right? It's a bias. It's not objective. Um, so I knew that. I knew that what was going to happen. And to be honest, I didn't want to do it. I thought, I actually thought to myself, Amy, what if I just started writing about immigration without divulging that I was undocumented myself? And then after having, you know, a body of work, both in writing and in a documentary, then I come out. I thought that. But then why continue the lie? And I have to say, like, I think the fact that I had come out of the closet so early as gay when I was, you know, in high school, I think that was the other reason why I knew that living in this other closet wasn't sustainable. Right? That's the thing about a closet. You, you, you have to come out of it in some way. And even if you don't, you do. In 2011, Jose Antonio Vargas officially came out of the closet as an undocumented immigrant. This was years before millions of others would join him. And he did it in the most public way a person could. He wrote a cover story in the New York Times magazine called My Life as an Undocumented Immigrant. I had prepared myself for the worst. What I did not prepare myself for was silence. Meaning here I am, I come out. Like, you know, it's not like the Obama White House didn't know who I am. You know, I covered Obama in Iowa. You know, so like, and then, you know, at that, I think 2011 was, what, 400,000 immigrants were deported in the Obama administration in 2011. Yet I wasn't one of them. And then nothing happened, right? Like no one got a hold of me. So then I talked to Rick Stengel, the editor of Time Magazine, and I said, I want to write a cover story for Time about why they haven't deported me. I wanted to know, and I actually, in the piece, I called the Department of Homeland Security myself in New York, where I was living at the time. And I called them and I said, I'm Jose Antonio Vargas. I haven't heard from you. And the woman on the phone was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm reporting the story, you know, and I need a comment from the government. And then she got back on the phone and she said, we don't have a comment. No comment. Think about that. That was 2012. In many ways... If you made a line between that and where we are now, so what? The longest shutdown of the government is because of the wall. What is that about? The last times, the most recent times, we thought that we were going to see immigration reform. In 2006 and 2007, comprehensive immigration reform passes the Senate. They can't reconcile it with the House. goes nowhere. With a Republican president in 2013. With a Republican president. Yep. With a Republican president. 2013, obviously, we have a Democratic president. Comprehensive immigration reform passes the Senate. Doesn't get brought up in the House. It goes absolutely nowhere. Here we are now in 2019, and we have a government shutdown over the issue of funding for a border wall. Is there one through line in all of these stories about why we can't get to a comprehensive immigration reform? What's the common denominator in all of these things? There are two things that are related that don't quite get unpacked. One is the demographic changes. Like my arrival in America in 1993 coincided with like the beginning of this really dramatic shift when it comes to what this country is looking like. The beginning of a minority-majority reality in which there is no one single majority. Like, I come from the San Francisco Bay Area, and we were actually the first region in the country in which that was the reality. So in this country right now, there are 43 million immigrants, 11 million of whom are undocumented, like me, 
And in the next 50 years, according to Pew, we will constitute 88% of the overall population growth. That is the subtext in Steve King's comments. <laughs> That's the subtext in so much of this. And let me kind of go back on that. You cannot separate the 11 million undocumented people from the rest of the immigrant population because we live kind of in the same households. Out of 38 relatives of mine here in America, everyone else is either a naturalized U.S. citizen or was born here or are green card holders. I'm the only one who's undocumented in my family of 38 people. The other reality is us, the news media. And, you know, look, blaming journalists, especially at a time like this, that's the easiest thing to do. And I'm very careful about that because journalism is, is my church. I've been praying. I've been praying inside this church since I was, you know, 17 years old. So I, I say it with a heavy heart that in many ways, we in the news media has been complicit in the narratives that we built, in the narrative that led all of us now to this, to this point that a sitting American president can shut the government down by talking about the wall. After Trump won the Republican national nomination, Chuck Todd interviewed him. And I knew Chuck because of campaign stuff. So I emailed him and I said, before his interview, and I said, hey, Chuck, um, did you know that the fastest growing undocumented population are actually Asian immigrants and not Latinos? And of course, I followed it up, you know, we got him on the phone and then I emailed him, here are the sources <laughs> for the information you know, one out of seven Asian immigrants in this country is undocumented. One out of seven. And I pointed out, you know, 40% of the undocumented population did not cross the border. They got here on a plane and overstayed their visa. So what does that have to do with the wall? And then, of course, it didn't get asked because it doesn't fit the narrative, right? The narrative is it's about the wall. It's about the border. It's about Mexico. And then, Amy, let's Let's talk about the newsrooms and how newsrooms are made up. Mm -hmm. I think all those years when I was at the Washington Post, I think I was the only Jose in D.C. who was a reporter. And I'm not even a real Jose because I'm not, I'm not Latino or Hispanic. As I think now, you know, like how many, certainly there are, there, there, there are more um, Latinx people now in newsrooms, but certainly not enough, <laughs> right? And how does that become a part of the, how we think of this coverage, you know, 56 million, 56 million people in this country are Latinx, 56 million. And we keep talking about them as if immigration is the only thing that matters in their lives. So at its core, fundamentally, this is a debate about race. This isn't a debate about immigration. It's about, I mean, for me, it's a debate about who gets to be American and how we right. define that. And, and honestly, if you think about it, race and immigration, you, first of all, you can't separate them from each other, right? Like they're, they're completely married to each other. And yet those are two issues that I would, I would venture that most mainstream news organizations are still trying to figure out how to cover. So how do we get to a place? You, you have an organization, you work with an organization, Define American. You started this and it is a very optimistic organization. <laughs> you talk about the need for dialogue, introducing Americans to real immigrants. They are real people with real stories. You talk about the fact that these issues are nuanced and they're complex. And yet, you know as well as anybody else, Washington and politics do not like nuance and they do not like complexity. They want it to be 
a very simple answer. That's why yes. a wall becomes very simple, right? <laughs> we have a problem. Here's a solution. So how can you be as optimistic as you are that telling their, the stories may be the best way to make real policy hmm. change? Hmm. There's two reasons. One, because I started reading James Baldwin so early in life. <laughs> yeah, this, he has this great quote. Um, I cannot be a pessimist because I am alive. To be a pessimist means that life is nothing but an academic matter. So I have to be a, an optimist. I have to believe that we can survive what we have to survive. The second source of optimism, I still get whiplash thinking about where we are with LGBTQ issues in this country. So much of what's changed that happened kind of, you know, I call it the Ellen DeGeneres era, right? Ellen on the cover of Time magazine. And then two years later, Will and Grace being the number one show on television. And then Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the original version, not the Netflix version, right? All of those stories was all about forcing people to have conversations where they were at. Meaning you don't talk about LGBT issues just by watching cable news or reading the newspaper. You talk about it with your classmates, your coworkers, your doormate, your family members. All of a sudden, it was this real thing that was like sitting in the living room that you talked about. Thankfully, we live in a country where, you know, being homophobic is no longer culturally acceptable. Yet we live in a country in which being anti-immigrant is not only culturally acceptable, you win the White House for it. That's a cultural shift. That's a narrative conversation. That's a conversation that we have to have in living rooms, in kitchens, in offices, in schools all across the country. How did that happen? Especially in a country, you know, unless you're a Native American or an African American, you're an immigrant. You came from somewhere. Did they have papers when the Irish showed up after the potato famine? I've looked and looked and looked. They didn't. So then how, how come you can ask people now, you know, why can't you do it legally? And of course, my, my answer to that is, I wish I could do it legally. I wish there was a legal process, but there isn't one. If there was, I'd follow it right now. You can read more about Jose Antonio Vargas's full story in his new book, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. We had an ambitious idea this week, try to explain in an hour why Congress has failed in its last two attempts to pass comprehensive immigration reform. The goal was not to leave you with the answer, but for you to appreciate all the cross-currents and challenges that face policymakers. But I was struck by two things over the course of putting the show together. First, it's actually not that hard to pass an immigration reform bill. The biggest impediment to success is the lack of political will and a willingness to sacrifice and compromise. And that includes lots of people activists, folks on the front lines of the issue, not just the politicians. The second is that whenever we talk about immigration reform, we hear a lot from political figures, but not as much from real people. I want to leave with the voices from the people we heard at the top of the show. I am American citizenship now, and I have a right to stand up for America, not just to be here. So right now I'm not scared to say I'm a refugee, I'm LGBT, I'm here. We have to take them into custody. You know, you have a job to do. You swore an oath to do the job to enforce the laws of the United States. We're very Americanized, as my dad said, you know, Thanksgiving, all of these traditional American um, customs. We have incorporated them into our own culture and into our own lives. Thank you to the Marshall Project for the audio you heard of these voices. It was all collected as part of a project called We Are Witnesses in partnership with Newsy. 
That's all for us today. Remember, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway. <laughs>